Sometimes, in order to know where to go next, we have to understand how have we got here. Both of my guests take great pleasure in challenging the very foundations of scientific thinking. My first guest is the globally renowned scientist and writer Rupert Sheldrake. Best known for his work on morphic resonance, he is also a revered, celebrated and outspoken critic of scientific orthodoxy. My other guest this week is Dave Glowacki. Scientist, artist and cultural theorist, Dave is a research fellow at the Royal Society. He also heads up the Intangible Realities Laboratory a groundbreaking research facility hidden somewhere deep in the corridors of Bristol University's chemistry department. And that's where we found ourselves, one fine morning not that long ago, sharing a pilgrimage together, down the long path of scientific orthodoxy and into the long grass of faith, beauty and nature. I started off by asking, how did we get here? Well, I mean, it's a long story, isn't it? I, I think um, there's several ingredients. I mean, the 17th century uh, revolution, um, when Descartes had his dream on November the 10th, 1619, and he saw the whole universe as a machine, um, this was, a, you know, a transformative moment. And um, on November the 10th, 2019 recently, a number of us uh, revisited Descartes' dream and the, the process through which he went, um, because this dream was followed by a series of disturbing, nightmarish visions that he had, uh, worries about where this was going to lead. Anyway, the vision of the universe as a machine made of unconscious matter, um, separated off from the world of consciousness or spirit, is what Descartes gave as a foundation for what's been the scientific paradigm ever since. And so I think this uh, is, it had various bad effects. First of all, it separated consciousness from nature, made nature unconscious and mechanical. It separated mind from body, made the body a machine, our bodies a machine, and our minds something totally different. It separated religion and science, so religion got God, angels, and human conscience and morality, and science got the whole of the universe from which God had been totally withdrawn, the world of spirit. Um, and then in the 19th century, with the rise of materialism, um, the God, angels, and spirit were, were, were just wiped out of this worldview till you were left with unconscious matter, full-blown full blown materialism. And then I think with the institutionalization and professionalization of science, um, particularly since the Second World War, um, there's been um, a, a very little scope for people to question this worldview. So science has now become ideologically driven by this um, alienating worldview. It alienates us from ourselves, from our own experience, from the natural world. Um, and I think it's bad for the world, bad for us, and bad for science. And I, the whole point of my recent book, The Science Delusion, is that we could do a lot better. Science could become a lot more interesting if it moves beyond that dogmatic framework. What are the barriers to changing that story? Well, um, the barriers are partly theoretical. Mm. A lot of scientists are indoctrinated with this worldview, which dominates our whole culture. And not because they're taught about it explicitly. They're not explicitly taught these are the beliefs and this is what the evidence for them is. It's implicit. They absorb a whole paradigm or worldview. Um, and then secondly, the career structure within science at the moment is such that it enforces conformity because it's hyper-competitive. People have to get published papers in high-impact journals and that sort of thing to get promoted and to get grants. And that doesn't encourage non-conformity or creativity. It encourages incremental improvements in science. So it works along established lines with incremental improvements. But there's a severe disincentive to creative thinking, mm -hmm. which is very bad for science because it ought to be about creative thinking. Mm. How does that 
challenge you as somebody who needs to get grants, needs to justify your existence within the Department of Chemistry at Bristol University. Um, you know, the plaque on the door says intangible realities. Um, I'll be really... Laboratory. Sorry, sorry. Intangible realities laboratory. Don't forget that. Very important word, yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I'd be interested in how you, as a practicing scientist um, at the head of your field, how that shows up for you. I think, I mean, I think I resonate with a lot of what um, Rupert said um, about where science is at right now. I guess from my perspective, I think science has made significant progress. Um, I, I think, like, in terms of, like, material progress, like, there is a lot of progress that has been made. I think the real question that's emerging now is one of values, which is, okay, like, science helped build this economic structure that's causing ecosystem collapse. Um, science has kind of driven a lot of the interest of a larger sort of material military industrial complex and in effect science is kind of a method that's agnostic to values right science doesn't really tell you much about values in my view it kind of is a method for saying if i want to learn about this then here's a good method to follow right so i'm systematic about my observations i write things down i have other people try to reproduce things and then I have a few iterations where, like, we have conversations about that. And I only say that, like, you know, it's kind of a solid conclusion when I've done the method this number of times in this way and people come to this kind mm. of conclusion. And I think that is a powerful method. Like, there is no doubt about it that that's a powerful method. And I think Rupert would agree with oh, the I power quite of agree. that method. Oh, I Absolutely. Right? I mean, I've been doing it myself all my career. Exactly. But that method doesn't really have any kind of intrinsic value system, mm. right? That method can be utilized, you know, and has been utilized historically for all kinds of evil things. And it can also be used for good things. And I guess where, where from my position where I'm sitting is thinking about how to bring... I think it's becoming increasingly clear that this march toward progress needs to really be deconstructed, whatever mm-hmm. that means. And um, I think that, you know, there is this sort of alienation between this materialist view of the world and then people's sort of lived experience. And, and this is nothing new. I mean, Husserl wrote about this when he talked about the crisis of phenomenology mm. in the European sciences. A lot of people have written about this through oh, the yes. ages. I think one thing, Rupert, I've been very inspired by with your writing is talking about things like um, Science Set Free. By the way, I much prefer that title compared to The Science Delusion. I'm going to say that right now. So do I. I think, like, there's a number of my colleagues I would want to share with them a book called Science Set Free, but Mm. I wouldn't want to share with them a book called The Science Delusion just because they would bristle at one, but be more open-minded no. toward the other. and <laughs> No, my publisher insisted in Britain on okay. calling it the Science Delusion. Okay. He said the sales and marketing division said it would sell twice as many. Right. Okay. And actually, it has. Okay. It sold twice as many in Britain <laughs> with that title as Science Set Free in the US. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but I think one of the really powerful ideas in that book was the power of metaphor. And thinking about I, I think two things that really stuck with me there I think we're thinking about thinking about things as machines versus thinking about things as organisms it's a very simple metaphorical change yeah alters your perception toward how you think about your subject matter mm. and we are in this era where we want to think of basically every era imagines the brain as whatever the state of the art technology is at the time right so yes. in Victorian England they would imagine as pumps and steam valves now we think it's a neural network on a computer chip right mm. and there's such a intrinsic momentum toward always using the metaphor of the dominant technology and what I love about that simple change of machine for organism is it it really problematizes that in, I think, such an elegant way. And I've caught myself so many times unconsciously using these machine metaphors since I mm. have read the things um, 
that you've written about. Mm. And, and I think that is a real problem, right? If people are constantly using the machine metaphor, they start to imagine themselves and others as machines. Mm. And then, but then the question is really one of values. Well, machines are programmed to do something, so what are the machines programmed to do? And that's the values question mm. that I was just referring to. Mm. So what is the metaphor or the 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 mythology of the new science that's you know is it simply about kind of engaging people with a more uh, systematized view of the world a more organic perspective what's the the new story that needs to be told well i don't know i mean I don't know what david thinks but i would say uh, i think the new story that needs to be told is first of all the shift from, as we just said, the metaphor of the machine to the metaphor of the organism. Mm -hmm. The whole universe is nothing like a machine. In the 19th century, they thought it was a kind of clockwork machine that was running out of steam and would eventually freeze up in a thermodynamic heat death. Mm -hmm. And that view prevailed within science till, what, 1966 or something, when the Big Bang Theory came in. The Big Bang Theory says the universe began very, very small and the Big Bang is like the hatching of the cosmic egg in ancient mythologies. Um, and the universe has been growing and expanding and cooling ever since, and as it grows and expands and cools, new forms and structures and patterns arise. A tremendous creative process has unfolded. There were no iron atoms or zinc atoms or palladium atoms at the Big Bang. Even the elements of chemistry have evolved. Molecules, crystals have evolved, life has evolved, planets, stars, galaxies. A creative evolution underlies the whole evolutionary process, and one which I would argue includes memory as well. And this is much more like an organism than a machine. No machine starts small and grows by itself and forms new structures creatively. So basically we've actually got an organic metaphor for the universe, but people persist with the old language. Um, and the machine metaphor was one of extreme determinism. In 1869, T.H. Huxley, uh, who propagated so effectively Darwin's evolutionary ideas, said that a supreme intelligence um, at the moment of the uh, formation of the universe from a primal nebula, um, knowing the position of all the atoms and all the laws of nature would be able to predict the fauna of Great Britain in 1869 with total accuracy. <laughs> I mean, this idea of mechanistic determinism was rooted in science, and Huxley was enormously effective in propagating the idea of science as the way to truth. Um, and, so, and we now know that the universe is indeterminate at all levels, quantum level, you know, chaos theory and chaotic dynamics dominate the weather. There's hardly anything that's particularly predictable. I mean, the only thing that's really predictable and repeatable in nature are machines, and even they break down unexpectedly. So um, it's, um, it, again, we're getting to a, a kind of more organic view of nature. I think that's the metaphor, that it's evolutionary, it's organic, it's a living story, it's developing, and it's open-ended, and it's not a fixed thing. And we're part of this, and we're interconnected. And I think the other part of the story is that everything in the universe is interconnected. Um, we're interconnected with the ecology of the Earth. We're not separate. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's a lot about individualism, about materialism and separate atoms and reductionism that thinks the smallest things are sort of separate and fundamental. But what we realize now is there's many levels of organization, and at each level, cooperation and interconnectedness are essential to the whole system keeping going. Competitiveness does exist, but in the 19th century evolutionary model and indeed in the neo-Darwinian 20th century model, it was the supreme force. But uh, And again, that was a kind of projection of Victorian capitalism onto the whole of nature. I mean... And, so again, that part of the story is that cooperation rather than competition is what keeps things going, mm. including human societies. Um, so I think that's part of the new story, that we're not separate from nature. Nature's organic, alive, evolving, mm. and interconnection is everywhere. And ecology is one of the key visions of nature about interconnectedness and interrelationship. Mm. Does that fit with your way of thinking, David? I, I, no, I mean, I think everything that you've just said um, 
resonates with me a lot. I guess just to follow that up quickly, I guess also thinking about the role of metaphor, you, you the, in Science Set Free, there was um, another thing that really made me think, which was, I think, the Big Bang Theory. You said that at one point it was called the Primordial Seed Theory. Mm. And that small change, right? Because everybody can relate to a seed. I plant a seed in the ground Mm. and it grows complexity and structure. Mm. And that as a metaphor for the sort of emergence of the universe, I think is so much more powerful than imagining some cosmic like explosion that's, you know, orders of magnitude bigger than any kind of nuclear explosion I could ever imagine. And that small change of metaphor is really important because in the one case you have a, an action of like planting a seed, a thing that people can relate and understand and understand in most of their lives. Whereas on the other side, you have this very violent sort of almost militaristic metaphor and the change that you have, if you imagine sort of the emergence of the universe in one yes. framework versus the other is quite dramatic with the simple substitution of one word for the other, but they both capture the same idea. Yes, well, the Big Bang, of course, was a name that Fred Hoyle gave to this derog- he, as a de- he was a derogatory attack on it, actually, and that name stuck. Okay. Um, and George Lemaitre, who thought of the idea of the primal atom or the primal seed, mm-hmm. um, was a Roman Catholic priest and cosmologist and, and uh, thought that this fitted with a kind of creation story that made sense to him, which is why most scientists were dead against this view of nature, why they resisted it from 1927 till 1966, um, precisely because they thought it was an attempt to smuggle a kind of spiritual view back into science. Mm. And then when the Big Bang Theory became orthodox in 1966, people who defended the previous view, the steady-state view, like Fred Hoyle, they were treated as heretics. Mm. There's this terrible thing in science when a scientific revolution occurs, as Thomas Kuhn described, it's not like a revolution from a dictatorship to a democracy. It's a revolution from one dictatorship to another dictatorship. And uh, then you have a new orthodoxy which imposes a kind of uh, dictatorial thinking on the scientific community. I think what we need is more pluralism. Mm. And actually that would fit with this new metaphor of nature as being mm. you know, more organic and interrelated mm. because nature is not a dictatorship. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a, a pluralism, vast pluralism of species, planets, stars, galaxies, etc. And I think actually one of the shifts is to recognize that science as a single thing is actually the sciences. And each one's quite different in its terms of reference. I mean, geology looks at rocks and fossils and things. Astronomy looks at stars. And you can't do experiments in astronomy. You can't get a star to explode as a supernova over and over again so you can study it under laboratory conditions. It's entirely observational, whereas some scientists are more, ex- sciences are more experimental. So Wimelon sees the sciences as like an ecology of different points of view and different ways of looking at nature. I think that helps us to get the scientific world into, uh, into this new paradigm as well. I guess one of the things that I've become very interested in terms of thinking about new directions is, and this is partially inspired by Rupert by things you've been writing and and other people like uh, David Abram, for example, has has written, um, who's another person I've really enjoyed his writings, um, is if you think, if if you really take seriously some of the fundamental ideas of science so like for example e equals mc squared like matter and energy exist on a continuum and they're interconvertible i mean how can you not if you you really take that seriously i mean there's deep spiritual significance to that as a statement right but in the scientific paradigm it's just an equation and it's isolated from any kind of day-to-day experience that you might have of these relationships and i guess one of the things that a lot of the artwork that and 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 the research studies we're doing in this laboratory is aimed at taking very fundamental and very fundamental insights which in some sense are not controversial at all but simply reinterpreting their significance 
in a broader way, right? Mm -hmm. So trying to give people an experience of, okay, like, what does it mean if I am actually constructed, you know, the the, all the all the atoms in my body are different every seven years and are integrated with the whole ecosystem around me. Like, what does that mean? What's the spiritual significance of that fact, right? Mm. What does it mean that, like, I am actually this, um, you know, temporary coalescence of energy that will then dissipate back into the matrix of everything? Like, what does it mean that energy and matter are actually you know, objects that are continuous. They're not distinct from each other, right? What does that mean for a materials worldview? And I think I've become really interested in the, you know, poetic and artistic ways to express these very deep insights to kind of get people to think more about their spiritual significance. And I guess maybe that's important to do now because as you've noted, like religious um, communities are, not as prevalent as they once were. So science has emerged as a new form of dogma. So the question is, can that dogma now be interpreted to really kind of get to the heart of the deep spiritual significance of the insights that it provides? I think that's a really important point. And I, I mean, I think that's part of the new story, that actually nature's not made up of stuff, of objects, of material objects. It's made up of processes. And... You know, Whitehead in his philosophy emphasized that quantum theory is pointing to the world as process. Mm -hmm. And actually, E equals MC squared, when it tells us that matter is, uh, as David Bohm put it, frozen light, that the energy of light um, is frozen in matter, an atom isn't just a a little billiard ball, it's a vibratory pattern of energy, of, of orbiting electrons that are in orbitals that have resonant patterns, basically resonant patterns in movement in process and uh, of course evolution is a process but when we realize that everything even an atom a molecule a crystal is a process not just a thing um, I mean that I think your aim to of actually realizing the poetic and spiritual implications of these aspects of, of, of physics is, is very, very important because normally, as you say, they're taught as equations, you learn it, you put it down in exams, you, uh, these are just facts. And science is so boring the way it's taught now, it's just facts you've got to learn, and that's one of them. Um, and most scientists don't feel able to draw out these other p p potentialities. I think you know it'd be a wonderful thing if more artists get engaged, and it's great you're doing this because um, they have the capacity through visual arts, through poetry and music, and so on, to actually make these things experiences for us rather than just equations on paper. Something which I'm interested to draw us onto is about faith, which builds onto this, and particularly blind faith. This idea that. Um, perhaps within the contemporary scientific worldview there's a sort of fixed idea of you know things are as they are and people just take it as fact and maybe I see you both as scientists who are challenging and have challenged and continue to challenge that through your experiments and activities hmm. um, and as a, on a personal level I've I'm kind of I have a sort of natural resistance to to blind faith both in science but also in in religion. I, I'm someone who tends to kind of like I like to experiment with lots of different corners of religion mm. and make up my own story. Um, I'd be interested to to know whether your resistance to blind faith within science is similarly understood within your kind of spiritual understanding of the world and spiritual practice. Both question to both of you. Why don't you go first? Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so, I guess, I guess, faith is a tricky one, right? For science, in the science, for a scientific method, there's always this tension between. Okay, so the motto of the Royal Society is uh, nullius in verba, which is Latin for basically don't take anyone's word for anything, right? And that's the founding dogma of, you know, the oldest scientific academy in the world. And that's a statement about faith, which I think is interesting. Um, it's also a statement about science, right, which is which is interesting. And, and I think that is an important thing to keep in your mind. However, 
if you want to make progress, then sometimes you need to like accept some of the work that's gone before if you are convinced of its rigor, right? Um, because if you have to prove every single thing to yourself at every point, well, there's then there's just too much, too many things to do. Exhausting. Right? I mean, if you have to <laughs> sort of question, I mean, Newton had this really good equation, F equals MA, and if you kind of say, well, I don't believe that, and I'm going to go in, back in the lab and try to, like, you know, Debunk figure it out it. for myself, you can do that, and it might be fertile, but on the other hand, you can also say, well, you know, there's certain things that seem to work pretty well, and operationally, I'm just going to stick with them. And I think... Th- in terms of science and creativity, the question you ask, that is the fundamental question, is where, in terms of where to expend your energy, where are the points where there's cracks in the edifice, where your energy is productively spent looking at things that look like, oh, you know, maybe there's a problem in there, and I need to spend energy looking at it. But it's complicated because... Science also, there's no guarantee that it's, that method is going to give you the answer that you want. So it might turn out that, like, it, it doesn't work, right? And so there's always a tension between trying to figure out what should I reprove to myself because I think that was a blind assumption and where do I draw a line under it and say, okay, I'm going to stick with this as an operational paradigm because it seems like it's worked pretty well. Mm. And I think... For me, that perhaps is the question not only in scientific practice, but also in religious practice for myself, um, is you know, what rituals, the, you know, there's a big movement going on for people to reinvent new forms of ritual, right? But there's also like a lot of really old rituals that go back like a long time that are pretty potent and powerful. And so the question is, what's... What's the balance between inventing new things that kind of, you know, maybe are aligned with the zeitgeist or speak to people more powerfully, but also maybe just reminding people of, like, the old things that work really, really well? Yeah, well, I know. I agree with that. I mean, the, I think that science, the sciences are based on a set of assumptions. In my book, Science Set Free, The Science Delusion, I take the ten what I take to be the ten fundamental dogmas and show that if we question them, turn them into questions, instead of saying nature is mechanical, we say is nature mechanical. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying matter is unconscious, say is matter unconscious. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying memories are stored in the brain as physical traces, are memories stored in the brain as mm-hmm. material or physical traces? Um, these questions open up whole new areas of scientific inquiry. So um, I'm in favor of that approach rather than the blind faith in these dogmas that uh, uh, happens in many scientists through their education. I mean, in the neurosciences, for example, you probably wouldn't be able to hold down your job for very long if you question that memories are stored as material traces in the brain, even though people haven't been able to find the traces. Mm. Um, um, uh, Their traces are deeply problematic. In the 20th century, you'd lose your job if you said there was an inheritance for acquired characteristics in biology. It's now been rebranded epigenetic inheritance, and it's mainstream. Uh, good thing it is. Um, um, it's a very interesting area. So I think there's... A, but again, you know, like you, David, I think that it, it's important to find where are the weak spots, where is the membrane the thinnest. And I mean, I, a lot of my career has been based on that. Which bits of science actually could change mm-hmm. and, and, and which would, could be productive areas for inquiry. Now, I take very much the same approach in the spiritual and the religious area. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I, I encounter much more blind faith in relation to science than I do in relation to religion. That's partly because and I'm a practicing Anglican, and mm-hmm. Anglicans don't go in for blind faith very much. I mean, if I were a Mormon or a Southern Baptist or something, I might have more of a problem but I when I go to Anglican services I have lots of friends who are Anglicans you know I know bishops and priests and and so on I find very few of them um, are in a world of blind faith and and the most fundamental doctrines in the the Christian um, world like the doctrine of the Holy Trinity the ultimate nature of God the creed is a statement of a belief in these three aspects of God and um, actually 
If you look at um, modern theology, there's a, my favorite book is David Bentley Hart's book, The Experience of God Being Consciousness Bliss. He shows that major religious traditions, including Hinduism and so on, have this threefold model of ultimate consciousness, being consciousness and bliss, um, which gives a really interesting way of thinking about the nature of consciousness, the nature of the Holy Trinity, um, not as blind faith, but as a kind of stimulating uh, inquiry that fires the imagination. And even the official view of the Holy Trinity is that it's a mystery and there's no single interpretation that is uh, the valid one. So um, I'm against blind faith, um, except when it's convenient just to accept certain things, like, for example... There's a kind of, you could say, a blind faith that Jesus was born on December the 25th. There's not a shred of evidence for it. Um, There's nothing in the Bible about it. But the fact we all take it on blind faith means we have fun at Christmas. And, you know, I have a a friend in London who's a biblical literalist who, who says, I'm refusing to observe Christmas. It's a pagan festival because there's not a word, no evidence in the Bible for it. So instead of having fun on Christmas, he's sort of handing out pamphlets saying Christmas doesn't exist. Well, no one's very interested <laughs> in this questioning of blind faith. Um, so I think in some areas it's actually important. You know, we in Britain have a blind faith that you ought to drive on the left-hand side of the road. No one questions it. Um, and thank goodness they don't, because if people thought, oh, I'm going to drive on the right, uh, it would be fatal for uh, oncoming traffic. Um, whereas in America they have a blind faith, you should drive on the right. Mm-hmm. So in certain areas, uh, just an unquestioning acceptance is appropriate. Mm-hmm. My grandfather, um, who my mom's side, who was quite influential in our family, I remember he, when I was younger hearing him, he was sort of, you know, we were born Catholic, and I remember he always used to say, if my faith is a dream, don't wake me up, um, which I always thought was just an interesting statement about, like, the refuge, his faith being a refuge for him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was a successful businessman, he worked mm-hmm. in industry for a long time, but then there was this part of him that he just said, I enjoy, I enjoy, <laughs> I enjoy what this brings to my life, and so I'm going to persist in it. Now, the, I guess the key thing is, is that faith or blind faith, the, the problematic word there is blind. I don't know exactly when faith becomes blind or sighted, right? I'm not mm. really sure about that. Um, I, don't, I don't, yeah, maybe you, maybe you guys have thoughts on when faith is blind or when faith is, you know, sighted. Well, I think that certain things, um, that, you know, say Hindus, most Hindus believe in Ganesh, mm-hmm. the elephant-headed god. Well, now, it's very unlikely that Ganesh ever actually existed, you know, the head transplant of an elephant onto a human. I mean, wouldn't fit for a start. Um, but nevertheless, he's part of the Hindu worldview. You see statues of Ganesh everywhere. The, I looked online and there are discussion groups, Hindu discussion groups about people discussing Ganesh dreams, where Ganesh appears to them in the dream. So you could say it's a blind faith that Ganesh exists, or you could just change the language and say it's an archetype. It's, it's one of the archetypes that there's this human-animal hybrid form which has certain attributes and can help remove obstacles and so on. Um, and blind faith is somewhat derogatory, and um, I don't think most Hindus would see it as blind faith that Ganesh exists, but Ganesh is a helpful archetype who appears in people's dreams. And you could say that some aspects of faith apply it to the dream world or the fantasy world. And after all, most people in, in modern industrial societies live in a fantasy world. I mean, Hollywood films, TV entertainment, soap, soap operas, etc. I mean, video games, they're what most people spend most of their waking time doing, mm. not looking at hard facts with unflinching reason. Okay. <laughs> 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 and I think in that context, modern life deserves or needs or calls out for um, salvation of sorts, places of, of rest and re- respite from that modern uh, fairy tale mm. of consumption and um, disconnection. 
and uh, most recently you've been writing a lot about spiritual practices mm. and um, I'm interested in how so-called non-believers or um, people who maybe see themselves having a fairly radical materialist view um, are still keen adopters of various different spiritual practices from across the global faith um, so yeah I'd just like to sort of imagine I suppose in, in the spirit of inspiration for troubled times and what, what we're here to discuss um, is how religious practice or spiritual practice can in its own way um, lead to a more progressive and regenerative scientific dialogue but also in terms of politics and economy as well um, because I think there is a growing trend and I think you've identified that in your books that, that you know spirituality and meditation yoga is, is commonplace now whereas it really wasn't only a few years ago um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that well yes I mean there are many spiritual I mean, in my book Science Set Free I'm sorry in my books um, Science and Spiritual Practices and Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work I discuss seven practices in each book mm. and most of these are open to anyone whether they're religious or not I mm -hmm. mean meditation as you rightly say is, is one of the best known and yoga of course um, but practices like pilgrimage are becoming increasingly important I mean there's a big upsurge of pilgrimage in Europe all over Europe actually um, Santiago to Compostela is the best known but there are all sorts of pilgrimages coming up and recently the British Pilgrimage Trust has just um, uh, announced a, a, a series of one day pilgrimages to all the cathedrals in Britain mm -hmm. in Ireland there's a website 12 Pilgrim Paths it's called Pilgrim Paths in Ireland about um, on foot pilgrimages in Ireland. There are ones in Scotland, there are mm. ones in France. So there, you know, there's a revival of pilgrimage. And most of the people going on these pilgrimages are not devout Catholics or devout Anglicans. They're people who are spiritual but not religious, or some of them are even atheists who uh, just find this a meaningful and helpful thing to do. So I think there are a lot of inclusive spiritual practices, including connecting with nature, uh, pilgrimage. Um, and then festivals. Um, the interesting thing is that at the Protestant Reformation in England and other Protestant countries, the old festivals where the whole community would celebrate together were abolished. The Puritans didn't like them, the Protestants didn't like them. But we had a revival of festivals, and these great summer festivals like the Glastonbury Festival, I think are a revival of this ancient spirit of collective celebration. Mm. So I think what we're seeing is, a, uh, which I see as a spiritual practice, mm -hmm. so I think what we're seeing is a revival of spirituality in all sorts of forms, mm -hmm. some of them disguised, like in summer festivals, they're just music festivals mm -hmm. in some people's eyes, but actually they're collective celebrations uh, that are liberating for people to go to, and um, explorations of consciousness, since a lot of people do them with mind-altering substances. Mm -hmm. um, um, so I think it's a very interesting scene at the moment that it's not a relentlessly secular materialist world. There's spiritual practices bubbling up everywhere. Mm. I think that's absolutely true, but I think the the problematic thing perhaps is that we don't necessarily have a connection to what you might regard as elders or teachers or guides. There is a huge uh, up uprising in, in festivals and, and the spirit of carnival as a sort of escapist um, metaphor for, for you know countering modern living but mm. I, I, I worry that actually what we're really yearning for is is some guidance and I think there isn't really any way of knowing what's going on we're in an unprecedented time um, you know mm. in, a, in fairly history and human history in some ways has been quite stable for long periods of time and then there's been these huge great hiccups mm. this is a kind of hiccup that we've never ever been there's never seen been seen on earth ever before mm. and so having elders or guidance of, of kind of how to be in this time especially where people's spiritual guidance might not come from an established tradition or an established church or somewhere where there's a certain amount of mm. grounding in history and uh, confidence um, people are sort of pulling at straws a little bit so I'm, I'm interested in, in how 
in a very fragmented time when we don't necessarily have very kind of clear ideas, ideas of faith or belonging, um, where you put your faith and where, where you can, what you can trust, you know, it's kind of a little bit of like a pick and mix. You go online and, you know, go onto yeah. one of these apps and hopefully that will sort you out. But uh, but I think there's a there's a lack of connection to this longer history, and yes. and I think that's what we're facing is this sort of slightly schizophrenic spirituality. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. How do we solve that? I mean that that that's where I see science as potentially really a powerful mechanism for enabling. Um, enabling uh i guess so when you talk about elders you talk about like you know the preservation of a lineage of teachers and people that you can respect but in a sense like that has been um the the lines for a lot of these things do seem to be weaker than they were you know there's not nearly as many priests as there once was there's not as many teachers as there once was and and i think i think this idea of science scientific insights beautiful deeply significant scientific insights as being a means of preserving deep insight Mm -hmm. for people that can with people that are able to like explain them and make them relatable in ways that um captivate people seems to me like potentially one way to get around well potentially one solution to what you're talking about i mean i think another real problem we're facing is which i was speaking about with rupert earlier is you know the thing we haven't talked about too much is capitalism Mm. and you know it's not just scientific practice that like is is a slave to materialism like capitalism has a very very powerful role to play here right and capitalism has a real strong incentive to keep science locked within a material paradigm and I think for me, one of the problematic things about things like Glastonbury is that they're most like increasingly sponsored by big corporations, and it's becoming a kind of commodified experience. Mm. And and I and I and I think for me, one of the really interesting things that I have been kind of exploring is rediscovering the sacred, because the sacred is by definition a thing which resists commodification. The minute you commodify something, it's no longer sacred. Mm. And so the concept of the sacred, I love it because as a form of resistance against capitalism, which is basically alienating from the, alienating people from themselves, um, I think the sacred offers a really, a really powerful response to that. And, you know, the other thing about sacred spaces that you quickly realize compared to, um, you know, spaces built by the dominant power structure of capitalism is that sacred spaces are beautiful Mm. i mean if you just do a comparison of the beauty of spaces that are made when there's a sacred objective versus a capitalist objective like there's no comparison in terms of the beauty of a cathedral versus Mm. like a modern data server i mean i mean or even a shopping center it's not even close i mean it's it's, it's (laughs) and it's not just culturally specific (laughs) i mean no, the beauty of a mosque or a tomb yeah. or a, a yeah. Hindu temple or a yeah. Buddhist shrine. I mean, yeah. all those Buddhist temples in Thailand, I mean, they're beautiful. And in all these different cultures, because mm. mm. beauty is a value within the sacred. Absolutely. Whereas functionalism is exactly. a value within capitalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So, um, no, I agree with that. And I think that the, you know, I don't know whether there can be a, a single... Um, unifying one single unifying framework mm. here in Britain the last time we had a single unifying framework was before the Reformation when we had the Roman Catholic Church after the Reformation the first attempt was to make the Anglican Church the single unifying framework but that didn't work because some people kept, went on being Catholic mm. albeit illegally and then other people were more radical you know Quakers, you know Baptists um, and then later Methodists, Presbyterians. So we, in, even in the religious sphere in Britain, we've had pluralism for centuries. Mm. Um, there's not one single um, leader. And now we have, you know, Buddhist teachers, Hindu teachers, you know, Sufi teachers. There's every kind of spiritual teacher. Mm. Um, I don't think we can aspire to 
a single uniformity. But I do think the one thing that unites everyone who live in this country and in every country is the land they live in, which is why I think that the land itself and sacred places within it and pilgrimages across it Mm. can be a unifying force. And that's one reason I'm so keen on this revival of pilgrimage, Mm. because we all live, if we're English and we live in England, then England's where, or Britain, or the UK, or Europe, or whatever framework you want, uh, it's, we're localised, and um, relating to our place and reconnecting with the place where we're rooted Mm. and recognising our roots in it is, I think, very important. I think it's also important for people who immigrate. You see, one of the problems with immigration is that the immigrants who come to Britain or anywhere else from their own country leave behind their sacred places. Hindu immigrants to England, for example, their great sacred places are in India, not in England. Mm. Um, And most immigrants stay in cities and don't relate to the countryside. And I think welcoming visitors and immigrants to England on pilgrimages in England would help to root them what in a lovely this idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, because that would then, and, and I think one of the points of the British Pilgrimage Trust is to welcome people of all faiths and none who, you know, on these pilgrimages. One mm. of the slogans is bring your own beliefs. Um, and actually, um, I was fascinated recently. I was in Switzerland. I'd gone to give a talk in Basel. And my host said, you know, the what would you like to do? We've got a free afternoon. And I said, I'd like to visit a sacred place, you know, a pilgrimage place, and if possible. I mean, just a short, can't go far. And he said, oh, well, I know what you'd be interested in. He said, Maria Stein, which is a black Madonna in a cave in a rock with a, a church above it. And um, it was the favourite place of Albert Hoffman, who invented uh, LSD, and so I went to this shrine, it was a beautiful church, and then we went down a long kind of tunnel and into this cave, and there's this black Madonna. Um, and to my surprise, about half the people there were clearly South Indian. You know, I lived in South India, I recognised these are Tamils. And then as we walked out, there are plaques on the wall, Thanksgiving plaques, and most of them are, you know, in in German and, 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 and so on. But the, then I found a whole section where they're all in Tamil. Um, And I said, what's going on? And they said, oh, well, you know, Indian immigrants to Europe in Central Europe have discovered the Black Madonna. You know, she's the mother for them, and Hindus have a great cult of the mother. Here's the mother in Europe. Mm -hmm. And they go on pilgrimage to the shrine of the mother. Mm -hmm. They've discovered the mother in in Maria Stein. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a wonderful way in which they've rooted their faith in a shrine. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a Christian shrine, but no doubt these Black Madonna shrines go back before... Christianity to more ancient goddess cults. So I think these are all ways of connecting and and also bringing people together. Can I add to that? We I've become very interested in shrine building as a practice to create sacred spaces in the environment. Hmm. Um, and I'm really excited about that because I think it it kind of solves two problems. Um, it creates sacred space which we need which I think is, is, a, is a, like a form of resistance toward capitalism. Um, but also it, it like the practice of building a shrine, by building a shrine, by taking the collective energy of people and placing it at a focal point, you, you do create an energetic center. Yes. And then by people visiting the shrine, they make paths and they, you know, they bring flowers and they bring sacred objects to them. They leave things. They come and they make prayers. And that focal point of energy does create beauty around it Mm. and you know as natural ecosystems are being destroyed i I have wondered if one possible solution would be to say okay like we're just going to cover everything that's left with as many shrines as we can like as a potential solution as a global challenge it'd be like as many shrines we're going to build 10 million shrines Mm. and we're going to like place those in all the remaining forests and we're going to create we're going to do them in community with people and we're going to we're going to create things um i did this recently in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee, we built a we built a stone shrine um, to the Holy Mother, and uh, it was a sort of interfaith thing. It was um, my friend's father had given him a, a statue of the Virgin Mary, mm. and um, we built a stone shrine. We got people flew in from all over the U.S. to help make it. Everybody wrote down prayers, and we we put them in the sort of altar of the shrine, um, and then built the shrine on top of it, and. 
a lot of my friends uh uh colleagues came from a, a sort of Dzogchen Buddhist tradition and for them they kind of interpreted Mary as being an emanation of Tara, right? Yes. So it's very similar to what you're saying yes. here that this this sort of Mary, whatever that statue represented, for me in my Catholic tradition, I was comfortable for it. For them in their tradition, they were comfortable with it, but it was a sort of coming together to create a very potent, energetic mm. focal point that I think, I think if, you know, if people could do this at scale, create sacred spaces amongst ecosystems, we might be able to save ecosystems. Mm. Well, and, well, I mean, the traditional way is sacred groves. Mm. Um, you know, in the ancient world, when people cleared the forest for agriculture, they left pockets undisturbed as sacred groves as a home for the spirits. Um, and th- they still exist in India. The, the best places to find endangered species is sacred groves. They've never been cut down. And I think these were reinvented by John Muir in the National Park Movement in the United States. Yellowstone and Yosemite and so on are basically gigantic sacred groves. As we come into the last few minutes of our podcast today, I um, <clears throat> I invite you to think about some of the things we've discussed, particularly pilgrimage and shrine building. And um, I'd like you to imagine who you might take on a pilgrimage to build a shrine, and what you might talk about on the way there um, as leverage to bringing about a more regenerative and um, hopefully healthy future for our planet and uh, all beings within it. Um, so, yeah, in, uh, we can take a moment to pause and reflect if you need, but who might you like to take a pilgrimage with? And what would you discuss? Well... I actually do this every year with a godson of mine. Um, we actually go on a pilgrimage to a different cathedral, five or six miles, mm. um, and we don't build a shrine because there's already these incredible shrines already there, these great cathedrals. Um, but um, and we discuss all sorts of things, including his path in life, our path in life, the nature of nature, and so on. But one thing I'm very keen on at the moment, and something the British Pilgrimage Trust is exploring, is the idea of children going on pilgrimages as rites of passage. Um, For example, year six in primary schools. Some schools are actually going to do it this coming summer. Um, That they go on a one-day pilgrimage to a holy place because they're about to leave school, primary school, start a new phase of their career and uh, as a rite of passage, an expression of their journey. So um, I think that um, the idea of children going on pilgrimages at key stages in their life seems to be a really important one. I I don't know that I can answer who the person would be that I would take on a, a, a shrine building exercise or a pilgrimage um, exercise. I think what I found is, in a sense, it really doesn't matter. Um, But the key thing is that the people that form the community to do the pilgrimage or make the shrine have some connection to the place. And I guess, so what I, my answer would just be, tell me where the place is, and then I'll tell you who I want to talk to. And in a sense, it really doesn't matter. The beauty of building a shrine is that if people are rooted in place, a connection emerges from that. And I think that's actually the power of it. And in some sense, you know, I could say, oh, I want to take Donald Trump and make a shrine with him in some weird place that neither of us have any connection to. But that wouldn't work. It wouldn't do anything because there needs to be a rootedness and a care and an attention to that place. Mm. And then beauty will emerge from that. Mm. And in this place, we're in the intangible realities laboratory at the department of chemistry this is a shrine in here i'll tell you (laughs) (laughs) and uh and later this morning we're going to be exploring uh isness uh within a virtual reality framework which you you've discussed um in the past that as a form of modern cathedral Mm. tell me a little bit more about that before we close up Mm. Well, so I always, if you think of 
I guess so. Okay, so when I go visit, so like you, Rupert, when I fly around the world to go to scientific meetings and people say, what do you want to do in your spare time? I usually say, like, show me your local Shinto temple or show me your local cathedral or whatever. That's usually my, also my response. Um, And when you go to a lot of these cathedrals, you are amazed by the beauty of these. And you're also just amazed by, like, how grand they are and how Mm. ornate they are and and the concentration of energy that these structures represent to channel like invisible power effectively right they Mm. were a mechanism of channeling invisible power and one thing i've thought about a lot now is what are the how are we as a culture channeling invisible power right so at the time that cathedrals were built they were sort of the pinnacle of engineering expertise they were the pinnacle of artistic practice you know they were the culmination of extremely difficult planning operations to make sure everything came together often the building processes lasted for generations and if you think what are we building now it, that channels invisible power. I mean, it seems to me like a lot of invisible power now is going toward effectively a networked consciousness, right? That's kind of where I, that's my, in terms of what the industrial complex is building, it's a network consciousness. And so I've imagined, like, in a sense, like, you know, so how do we build network consciousness with huge cathedrals that effectively contain massive server farms full of supercomputers all around the world that enable mm-hmm. us to be networked? But they're not beautiful, right? Yeah, in any and kind they're of enormously consuming. They're enormously energy. energy like, th- there's all sorts of problems with them. Yeah. And I guess in, in describing, in thinking about what isness is, I guess the construction of isness within this technology that's been enabled by this channeling of energy that's happening i've i've kind of imagined isness as a kind of shrine i guess that we've made and and you know when we made isness we did it in a church in the woods outside bristol Mm. in order to channel that energy and i think um that's one metaphor for describing it but i i often have this feeling when I go visit cathedrals and think why aren't these built anymore it's because there's this channeling of energy into other kinds of invisible energies that connect us forces Mm. that connect us effectively Mm. but the problem with them is that they're they're driven by this they have incredible potential but they're mostly driven by consumer logic and that's where they kind of fall short and so isness as a as a form as a non-commodified experience of I guess what's emanated from that technological potency mm. I've imagined as a, cr- a kind of shrine in the digital space. And just for the benefit of everyone listening, could you briefly describe what is isness? <laughs> um, as an arts project coming out of the laboratory. As an arts project, I guess isness is um, it's a multi-person virtual reality journey designed to get people to reflect on the relationship between matter and energy which i think is a fantastic place for us to draw to a close um could could vr be a spiritual practice of the future um we shall find out um i'd just like to say a massive thanks to rupert sheldrake and dave gluacki for joining the new navigators this morning thanks very much thank you For more information about Rupert or Dave's work, go to sheldrake.org or glow-wacky.com. Heartfelt thanks to the Fintree Trust for bringing Rupert to Bristol and a further thanks to Isolde Freethale for the fantastic soundscape that we're listening to now. If you'd like to know more details about the books referenced in this podcast, We'd like to find out what is isness and where can I go and experience it. Please take a look at the episode notes or go to www.jamiepike.org forward slash the new navigators. If you've enjoyed what you've been listening to, please do subscribe and share far and wide. Until the next time, take care and farewell. <laughs>